Welcome to the Digital Edge with Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway. Your hosts, both legal technologists, authors, and lecturers, invite industry professionals to discuss a new topic related to lawyers and technology. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 79th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm Jim Calloway, director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. Today, our topic is PowerPoint Tips and Tricks for Lawyers. We are happy to welcome our friend Paul Unger. Paul is a nationally known speaker and writer in the legal technology industry. He's an attorney and a founding principal of Affinity Consulting Group, a nationwide consulting company providing legal technology consulting, continuing legal education, and training. He is the current chair of the ABA Legal Technology Resource Center online at www.lawtechnology.org and a former chair of ABA Tech Show in 2011. He specializes in trial presentation and litigation technology, documenting case management, and paperless office strategies. Paul Unger has provided trial presentation consultation for over 400 cases. He is also an adjunct professor for Capital University Law School's paralegal program. And in his spare time, he likes to run and restore historic homes, well, at least one historic home. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Sharon. Glad to be here. Paul, your book, which I really like, is called PowerPoint for Lawyers in One Hour, published by the ABA and available at the ABA Web Store. What inspired you to write your book? I know you do a lot with PowerPoint, but what was the inspiration for writing this book? Well, you know, as a young lawyer, I put together a lot of PowerPoint presentations doing litigation work, and PowerPoint then was really quite quite new in the in the early 90s, at least in the legal technology world. There wasn't a whole lot that was out there available for lawyers. And a lot of bad habits, uh, I think, started forming in the presentation world. And I started doing PowerPoint development work uh, in the trial presentation business in the, in the late 90s as I closed down my law practice and decided to be the geek that I am today. <laughs> but there's a lot of bad PowerPoint. And, you know, a, a few years ago when I was contemplating the book. We started hearing stories about CEOs banning PowerPoints from the boardroom and from presentations, and PowerPoint was really getting a bad rap, and um, and that bothered me because PowerPoint, I think, is uh, a great tool for for everybody, lawyers and 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 businesses included. So, you know, I like to start out a lot of my PowerPoint presentations by saying that no technology in the world replaces the vividness of the human imagination. The point there being that you don't have to create a slide or a thought or a bullet point for every single idea. And I think that is a lot of the, the, you know, the source of bad PowerPoint. So my, my inspiration for the book is just to not only teach people how to use the tool to create slides and the functions and the features of the program, but also to teach people how to put good PowerPoint presentations together. So speakers like Craig Ball, authors like Cliff Atkinson were my, my heroes in the, in the PowerPoint presentation world. So they inspired me, and all these bad stories out there kind of inspired me. At the end of the day, 
PowerPoint is just a tool. It's a tool in the toolbox. And you don't take away a screwdriver from everybody because one person decides to use it as a hammer. That's pure stupidity, in my opinion. And uh, to ban PowerPoint from the boardroom or from presentations, I, I think, is, uh, is overkill. So I wanted to create a book that taught people how to create good PowerPoint presentations. Paul, there are still some old-school trial lawyers who are very successful that refuse to use courtroom presentation technology. What do you have to say to those folks? I tell people to learn from those folks, first of all. There may not be anything we can do to, to persuade uh, many folks who have not experienced the benefits of the, of the technology, but there's a, there's a learning moment there, and that is we learn from them. There, you know, usually, a lot of those lawyers, those old school lawyers that you, that you mentioned, are great storytellers. I mean, they're, they, they may be brilliant, and, and that's a lesson in, of, in and of itself. We, we need to tell a story with PowerPoint, and PowerPoint slides don't tell the story. The storytellers do. I, I tell lawyers all the time when they, when they heavily and poorly decide to, to rely on PowerPoint as an outlining tool for their presentation or, their, or a te- as, a, as a teleprompt, I tell them, look, you need to focus on your, your storytelling skills, not your PowerPoint skills. PowerPoint's really just a, a, a complement to your presentation. So the lesson there is learn from the old school people, mix up the media, don't rely completely on PowerPoint. You rely on the chalkboard, rely on a whiteboard, rely on foam board blowups even. Now with that, I'm always cautious of saying, uh, don't rely on foam board blowups to show documents because that's the one thing in the courtroom that is, I feel pretty strongly about that you can very rarely ever show a foam board blowup of a document successfully with people being able to see and read the text. So but if it's a picture, a photograph, you know, you can, you can get away with a foam board blow up and the whiteboard too. You know, when, when a witness says something that's adverse to the other side, there's nothing more, you know, magical and impromptu about, uh, about walking over to an easel and a whiteboard or a piece of paper and getting that black smelly magic marker out and writing it. And, you know, the smell of it and the sound of the marker hitting the paper and it's that, you know, it's that spontaneity that you, that you can't achieve in PowerPoint. So, you know, you have to know the limitations of PowerPoint. And it's not an end-all, be-all. People get bored with PowerPoint as much as anything else. So I think there's a lesson to be learned from those old-school travelers. I really appreciate, Paul, the fact that you talk a lot about storyboarding, which I also do when I talk on this topic. But usually I find that lawyers have no idea what it is. And when I tell them that Steven Spielberg does it, then their ears perk up. <laughs> so, so can you explain storyboarding, Paul? Storyboards have been used in the film industry and the television industry for years, uh, for well, more than years, for over 100 years. But the way that I like to distill this to lawyers, distill this down to with lawyers, is this definition. Um, and it is, it's much more complex and sophisticated to those in the film industry uh, or you know, graphic designers or illustrators. It's, I'm painting with a very broad brush, but in very practical terms for lawyers, I like this definition that I've, that I've coined, and that is images and headlines glued together by your 
strong storytelling skills or by your narrative. So images and headlines glued together by your narrative, by your storytelling. So when I, when I coach lawyers about how to design PowerPoint slides, I tell them, look, when you go to revamp a presentation that you're currently revamping or create a, a PowerPoint from scratch, look at every slide and, and ask yourself that question whether or not that slide fits within the definition that I just gave. Images or headlines glued together by your, by your narrative. And that's what you want to try to aim for 80, 90, maybe 100% of the time. But if you can hit it 80% of the time where that slide it is representative of an image okay, or a headline, like one that you might see on the front page of a newspaper as opposed to a full sentence, okay, then you're falling within that definition. And, and you're mapping out your story in the form of storyboards using that definition. I think it's a very practical easy way to, to, to learn how to, to create storyboards, you know, without taking an eight and, you know, an eight hour course on, on storyboarding. I think it's a really good first step. So Paul, you've, you've done some storyboarding research. What are your conclusions about that? Well, when I set out to uh, develop PowerPoint presentations in the late nineties, I became very interested as did a lot of the lawyers that I would work for in learning about memory retention, the effect of design on memory. And so one of the things that we, we tested was storyboarding, the concept of that image using images and headlines glued together by your narrative, and also color and the effect of those good practices, uh, so we at least hoped, on on memory retention. And we found that it made a significant impact. And so here's one of the, the studies that we did. I had a roughly a hundred people in attendance at a seminar and I, I put together a, a, what I call a clopening statement. Um, and it was about 10 minutes in length. Um, it was, uh, I sent half the room out of the, the conference center and I read to them the clopening statement, uh, which is kind of a combined opening and a closing argument. And that group had the benefit of a, of a PowerPoint presentation and in the form of storyboards. So in the, in the form of that definition that I gave, images, headlines glued together by your, by your narrative. Then I, uh, I sent that half of the room out and I brought in the other half and read to them the clopening statement without the benefit of the, the PowerPoint slides in the form of the storyboards. Then we brought both groups back in together and administered a 10-question test. And so worth noting, the group that had the benefit of the PowerPoint saw the presentation uh, first. So more time had lapsed, and presumably they, they would have a harder time, or at least a slightly harder time, maybe remembering something since more time had passed. So we administered the test, and the group that had the benefit of PowerPoint scored seven and three-quarters points out of ten, and the group that did not have the benefit of PowerPoint scored three and one-quarter point out of ten. And one of the slides, which was I think was very telling, one of the slides was a four-bullet question that was, was covering what Dr. Jones was 
going to testify at trial today. So, and we put them in the, in the form of four bullets and four short bullets. So they were headlines, right? Because what we want to get away from are typically long sentences within the PowerPoint slide, either as a heading or a bullet point. We want headlines. That's the definition that we talked about earlier. Images, headlines glued together by your narrative. So the four bullet points that were presented were then quizzed. And uh, the question was, tell, uh, tell us or restate as many of the four bullet points you can remember, the four things that Dr. Jones is going to testify. And the group that had the benefit of the PowerPoint got three out of the four. And the group that did not only got one out of the four. So we know that PowerPoint, at least in, in the form of storyboarding, has an enormous impact on people's ability to, or jurors, you know, in this case, ability to remember the information presented. We also know from studies that are cited in Cliff Atkinson's book, Beyond Bullet Points, that people remember 28% more without the use of bullet points. So what's really interesting there is, so we, well, first of all, we have to define what a bullet point is and a good bullet point and a bad bullet point. So the good bullet points are the headlines. Uh, when we distill it down very, in very simple terms, if it's in the form of a headline as opposed to a long sentence, then people, uh, people will, will remember more if it is in the form of a headline rather than a long sentence. So the research showed that what happens with recipients of information, whether it be in a PowerPoint presentation or some other form, is that our mind goes into overload as we try to reconcile the spoken word with what they see visually on the slide or a television show. The example that I like to give, and not to pick on, on Bill O'Reilly, but he does this great little segment called Talking Points, or perhaps not so great. So where he does a split screen, and then he has text flowing, oftentimes in the form of bullet points that are, that are long sentences or kind of really, really long bullet points or sentences or so forth. If you watch tonight, you could see it. He does this almost every night. And it's really difficult if you try to listen to what he's saying and then read the information that's on that split screen. The phenomenon that we're talking about and the, and the, the, the research that Cliff Atkinson cites in his book becomes very clear. It's really difficult to reconcile the spoken word with the words that you're trying to read at the same time on the screen. And that translates to, at least in this research that Cliff Atkinson cites, a 28% loss of information. So, you know, our minds aren't really made well to multitask, and a lot of research is showing that today. So why don't we stop right there for a commercial break, and then we'll be right back. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. 
Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is PowerPoint tips and tricks for lawyers, and our guest is Paul Unger, a PowerPoint expert and an attorney and founding principal of Affinity Consulting Group, a nationwide consulting company providing legal technology consulting, continuing legal education, and training. Paul, one of my favorite lines from your book is a quote from Hans Hoffman, who said, the ability to simplify means to eliminate the unnecessary so that the necessary may speak. How does that bear on your conclusions about color research? Does this have an impact on how things are presented and how effective they are? Well, color became a, a very often submitted question to me about its impact on memory. And at the end of the day, color did not mean a hill of beans in the, in the focus groups that I had, that I had conducted. Um, interestingly, I asked top jury consultants around the country uh, probably about a half dozen of them, very informally, what color choices should we use when doing presentations uh, you know, that will affect memory and impression and so forth. And I got six different answers, and they were definitive answers from all six of them. Um, they were positive that you know, blue-yellow or, or green and whatever was, you know, were the, the, the true colors to use. But at the end of the day, as long as your presentation looks professional, that's what the focus group participants really concluded, that if it's a professional-looking, simple, professional-looking presentation, that's really all that mattered. We tested four different color schemes, and it didn't have any impact on, on memory whatsoever. If you're not artistically talented and, and don't have the budget for a graphic design firm, what can a lawyer do to design better-looking PowerPoint presentations? Well, keep things simple. There's elegance in simplicity, and you don't have to be an artist to put together a clean presentation. People tend to try to jam too much information and too many graphics on a slide, including, including clip art. I'm, a, I'm pretty anti-clip art in, in presentations, at least in the courtroom, um, and presentations that you might do for clients you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, you know, in a conference room. There are two books that I would recommend that, that lawyers buy that I think follow that principle, and they're what I use. I call them idea books, really. And one is called Presentation Zen by Gar Reynolds. I think it's a second edition now, and you could probably buy both books and have two really good idea books. And the other one's called Slideology by Nancy Duarte. They're both fantastic books, and I think they'll give you really good ideas. And, and what's neat about what's neat about the idea book is that they, you know, they follow that principle of storyboarding that I mentioned. And you'll be surprised how simple it is to actually create a slide. In you know, when we follow that definition of an image or headline glued together by your narrative. So I would buy those idea books, and I think uh, that will help people guide them through the, you know, navigating uh, the, the, the design of a, of a, you know, a nice, nice looking clean slide without having to hire a graphic designer if you don't have the budget. Paul, one of the things you suggested was to ask you about the 8-H rule and what that means. And the only reason I know is that I cheated and looked it up in your book. So, But I'm pretty sure the audience won't know. So why don't you tell them what that is? Well, the, the problem that we're trying to solve is having text that's too small on a slide. And, and we see that, again, just through you know, poorly designed slides where people are 
typing full sentences and, and, you know, they have eight bullet points on a slide. So the 8H rule basically came about when 35-millimeter slide presentations were developed. And the guiding principle on visibility was, you know, the slide was one inch. And if you held it eight inches away from you and you could read the text held up to a light, of course, then that was the you know, true telltale that it would be readable in most presentation situations. So in today's world, that really translates to your big monitor. And if you back up from your screen about, say, 60 to, 60 to 80 inches probably, and you can read the text, then that's probably the equivalent to what most people would experience in a courtroom we don't have a nosebleed section, so we don't have to worry about that so much. But in a conference center, you might. In real practical terms, I tell people to never go below 18. But really, in my presentations, I aim for a font size of 50 or higher. And I think if you follow that definition of storyboarding, you're going to have a lot of room on the slide for larger text. So you can get away with a 50-point and higher font. You never, never run into any trouble. So how are iPads changing the use of PowerPoint? or other technology in the courtroom for presentations? It's making an enormous impact. Now, what I love about doing power presentations from an iPad is that I am not glued to a lectern or a podium. I could walk around and, and present what I feel to be a very natural and comfortable presentation mode and style where I can converse with, it would be a jury or an audience. So the wireless capabilities that the iPad provides with the Apple TV uh, allows me to do that. I can see my upcoming slides in my, in my presentation view or lectern view. I can skip ahead of slides. And, and more importantly, following again, following with, within that, the consistency of the definition of storyboarding, images, headlines glued together by your narrative, you can get that text out of the doggone slide and into your notes section that then you can refer to, but you're not cluttering the slide, therefore diluting the message or distracting the jury or the audience by them reading the text and trying to, re- trying to reconcile your, the spoken word. So it, you know, the iPad's giving us that capability to do that. And, and uh, Microsoft just released the PowerPoint app for the iPad in March of this year which makes it even a more useful tool. So it's making a huge impact, um, I think, in making PowerPoint even more useful than it already is. We get asked all the time, are TrialPad and other trial presentation apps a replacement for PowerPoint? I have not found that to be true. What do you think, Paul? It's not. I mean, it's a tool in the toolbox. So TrialPad and other presentation apps is just another tool in the toolbox. Any, actually, trial that I've walked into the last... 10, 15 years, I've always walked in using PowerPoint and a trial presentation app like like program, like Sanction or Trial Director. And TrialPad is just that. It's a trial presentation program that's made for the iPad. And so for rehearsed situations, PowerPoint is what we typically use in opening and closing. But for witness examination, we need a trial presentation app for you know, the ability to be spontaneous, to go to any page and you know, tens of thousands of pages of, of exhibits or deposition testimony for impeachment or you know, for whatever that witness is going to address. Um, you can't achieve that spontaneity 
with PowerPoint. So in opening or closing, when it's so, so rehearsed, we know exactly what's going to happen. And so we want to be able to click through a presentation quickly uh, without having to tell a computer operator to, you know, to pull up an image. So they're very complementary. They, one does not replace the other. They're both excellent tools in the toolbox. What's your favorite how-to tip or a brief instruction that you have in the book, Paul? You know, there's several. Um, in the litigation world, I think it's really hard to do a trial without knowing how to do document call-outs. So in the book, I, I, I spend a good amount of time on how to create animated document call-outs and also what we call the Ken Burns effect, which is uh, Ken Burns was, a, was an American documentarian filmmaker um, that you know, took a still photo and set movement to it by panning and zooming in on part of the photo. We started to see that in, in the uh, 60s and 70s, and so we, we implement that technique in our PowerPoint presentations. We call it the Ken Burns effect after the American documentarian. So document call-outs, uh, working with video and audio in PowerPoint, especially in PowerPoint 2010 and higher, it changed that, that functionality of using video and audio changed dramatically in, in PowerPoint 2010 and 2013. The way PowerPoint handles the video, it's embedded within the, the slide itself, and you can now edit the, the beginning, the start points, and the end points of the video within the PowerPoint itself. Um, ways to work with PDFs and PowerPoint. We scan so much today as PDFs, so we cannot select... Uh, from a menu bar, insert PDF from file in PowerPoint. We insert images. So the book covers how to, actually several techniques of how to convert those PDFs uh, into an image format that can be easily inserted into PowerPoint files since we're no longer working so much with scanned TIFF images or JPEGs. Creating timelines, we spend a good amount of time I spent a good amount of time in the book as well. And then just some good presentation tips and using the, what we call the presenter view and hotkeys in, in mastering, really mastering PowerPoint as, as the presenter, not just, um, not just creating the slides. Well, I wish we weren't out of time, but I'm afraid we are. I know that we have heard consistently from judges that a PowerPoint that is well done can be quite compelling, and I think your book is a wonderful guide for how to make compelling PowerPoints. So we sure want to thank you today for sharing your expertise because you are the master when it comes to making a great PowerPoint. Well, thanks, Jim. Thanks, Sharon, for, for having me as a guest on your show today. I do want to end with three final rules about using technology in the courtroom, and that's first always have something meaningful to say. Number two, forget what you learned in law school and say it in plain English like a human being. And number three, there's no PowerPoint or amount of technology in the world that's going to help you with rules one and two. And that does it for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy. Thanks for listening to the Digital Edge. 
produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway for their next podcast covering the latest topic related to lawyers and technology. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.